Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Joining us again for the CIO Strategy Snapshot Conversation as we begin another week. I'm glad to welcome back to Top of the Morning, Jason Dreho, Head of Asset Allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. Jason, welcome back. Hope you enjoyed a nice weekend. Looking forward to the conversation. Good morning, Dan. Good to be here. So, Jason, we begin another week. I know we're coming off what was a turbulent week prior. And when you think about it, with all of the turbulence that investors have endured throughout the course of 2022, many at this point are understandably so wondering, well, when might the bottom be reached? I know that's very difficult to call, though last Friday, the chief investment office did downgrade its market outlook for the next three to six months. So, Jason, as we start off here, can you begin by explaining? explaining to us the factors that led to this change in view? So if you think, you know, historically, what uh, what are the conditions that need to be in place to get a, a market bottom? And we kind of go through the list and we think none of these marks factors have really been sort of achieved yet. So first, you know, inflation isn't really rolling over. We saw that with CPI last week where core inflation made a new cycle high. So it actually surged past its peak earlier in the year. Uh, and it was fairly broad-based. So that would suggest inflation... These headline is coming down, but the core numbers, the sticky measures are still quite there. Uh, that means the Fed has to keep hiking. Uh, we saw with market expectations and pricing ratchet up you know, what is anticipated for the rest of this year and to next year. So I think 75 basis points uh, in early November is pretty much a done deal. I think the market is debating whether it could be 100, but I think 75 is very likely. It's a coin toss if we would get 75 or 50 in December. And then I think, you know, what we would have thought is maybe they would you know, pause there. Now, they're unlikely to have enough data points at that point to say we're done. So I think that puts February, February 1st, and the next off film seemingly after that, certainly live on the market's pricing for another hike there. So all this caused the market to price more Fed hiking. I think a pause, you know, anytime soon or a pivot, you know, this calendar year looks quite unlikely, barring something really unexpected. Uh, and typically, you need the Fed to stop hiking to, to get that sort of market bottom in place. Because the Fed's going to keep hiking, you know, that means uh, more downside risk to economic growth and economic activity. And even prior to last week's news, I think the, the market wasn't fully pricing in the potential downside to earnings. And, uh, you know, in terms of credit spreads, also not sort of widening out, out enough to sort of warrant, you know, I think, you know, sufficient risk premium for the potential coming challenges on economic growth. Just on that front, simultaneously to our kind of downgrading our view for the market, we did take down our earnings forecast for, for next year. Uh, where we were anticipating for the S&P 100 earnings growth of 3%. Now we're anticipating it's going to be minus 4% on a year-over-year basis, um, which is typical. You know, what you get a recession, uh, growth would be negative. For a recession, only minus 4% is relatively mild. So the risk is that the you know, earnings growth could actually be worse than that. And the final thing is the valuations right now are certainly cheapened up, but they're not necessarily pricing in a lot of cushion for a more significant downside point where you could say, yes, there could be more challenges ahead, but stocks and, and credit is so cheap that I'm willing to buy because, I, you know, over the, over the medium term, I'm going to get paid enough. So when you think about all these things from the Fed still hiking, growth expectations are not fully reflected in market pricing, valuations aren't super cheap. On top of that, there's heightened financial stress and poor liquidity across different markets. All that would suggest that, uh, you know, the outlook, at least in the very near term for the next three to six months, 
has deteriorated uh, instead of, you know, probably a negative risk award skew from our perspective. So, Jason, what would you say is the real implication for the market outlook? Should investors be preparing for significant downside in the markets? And is there any possibility of a market rally similar to what we saw back over the summer? So there's you know, the scope for potential large downside or, or a decent rally. I think the way I would sort of think of it is that the environment we've been in for much of this year hasn't really changed. You have a Fed that's focused on changing financial conditions. It wants a slow growth, uh, below trend, is willing to tolerate a recession in order to bring inflation down, which is consistently is just too high. As long as the Fed is that in mindset, and other major central banks are as well, that's a challenge for financial markets, which means we get more of the same, you know, high volatility, large market swings that are really, you know, subject to incoming data points, any sort of commentary and communication from the Fed. You know, this is likely to persist certainly through year end uh, and into early next year. Uh, it does feel like investors have been sort of waiting for something to kind of break, to break out of the range you've seen for to the S&P of 100 from 3550 on the low end, you know, to all the way up to 4300, as you mentioned, this summer during the rally, to really kind of break out of that one way or another. Something has to change, whether it's inflation sort of breaking clearly to downside, the labor market breaking in a way that it becomes much cooler, or you get financial markets breaking. And we haven't seen any real kind of breakage on inflation or the labor market, some cracks, but not real breakage, which really kind of maybe puts the onus on financial markets uh, breaking to the downside. So where do, when we think about the risk reward, it feels like for, for the near term, it's more skewed to the downside that from current market levels, it's more likely we dropped like 32 to 3,300 versus going back up to 4,000. It doesn't mean that there couldn't be a short-term rally. Um, investor sentiment is poor and positioning is light. People have de-risked their portfolios whether that is sort of more institutional investors that take a long-term perspective, a long-only perspective, or hedge funds that move around a lot, uh, kind of fast money. Across the board, they de-risk quite significantly. That was the same case back in June. So any sort of favorable data or comments from Fed officials that suggest they're easing up on tightening, you can certainly see markets rally you know, fairly quickly on that regard. Uh, at the same time, though, there's poor liquidity in the markets, and as we move towards year-end, especially in December, when people really don't necessarily want to you know, take a lot of risk going into your end, you get big potential moves in, in markets on any sort of negative news. This is what happened in December of 2018. So I kind of think of it as the technical support, the positioning support is that it kind of could help markets going higher to taking an escalator up, but poor liquidity means you're taking the elevator down very quickly. So there's, there's that component. The other difference between now and the summer is the final sort of fuel to the fire in the summer rally was that people started to believe that there could be kind of a soft landing. And briefly, there was talk of sort of a Goldilocks environment where inflation is going to start to come down rapidly. The labor market is quite strong. The Fed is sort of dialing back a little bit of its rhetoric. And that was really what sort of escalated things in, in August time period. Right now, given the inflation outlook is, is not really improving very quickly, and you have central banks that are much more adamant about inflation, bring inflation down, I think the conditions and the beliefs that investors would have about a soft landing, it's just going to be much harder to achieve. So technically, you can get some rally for a short period of time, but it's more likely to be a bear market rally until we start to see sort of fundamental changes in the market. The technicals alone can't really sustain a rally beyond a certain level or for a certain period of time. Jason, that covers the short view in three to six months. That takes us into the beginning of 2023, though. Thinking out a bit further, what about the medium to long term outlook? Is that pessimistic or is there reason there for optimism? So I think the further you look into 2023, there's there's reason to be more constructive uh, and sort of optimistic about risky assets. So just to give some perspective, uh, in addition to uh, taking down our earnings forecasts for next year, we've revised our price targets 
uh, for the S&P 500, bringing it down to 3,700 for June and then 4,000 for December. So relative to the current levels, and if we look at where the markets will, will kind of trade on Monday, that's you know low single digits, you know, you know one two percent type of returns between now and June of the next eight months. But if you look until the end of next year, total return is somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 percent. And I think the risk is probably more skewed to the upside versus the downside at that point in time. So that is a you know, to me, it's a, it's a positive kind of medium to longer term outlook. And for those investors who do have that long term focus, you know, and they're diversified, this is actually, you know, you know, a relatively good environment that we think on that sort of 12 to maybe 18 month time horizon. If we look at some of the underlying data, you are seeing signs of the labor market is softening. You know, we had a big decline in the job openings uh, for uh, for August. Uh, wage growth for September was moderated and the most measure of the Atlanta wage tracker, which people are following closely, it declined from 6.7% uh, for uh, August to 6.3% for September, so a decent decline there. If you look at lean measures of inflation, uh, those are also pointing in the right direction, whether it's you know, goods prices, import prices, even shelter inflation, which is running at 0.8% month over month, and that's likely to continue for many more months to go because there's a lot of catch-up for the rise in housing prices over the past two and a half years the month-over-month changes are actually quite small in real time in terms of housing prices, and even rents are starting to moderate significantly. That will ultimately flow through inflation, but not until probably the second half of next year. You know, not soon enough for the Fed to really kind of pull back. Uh, so the, the macro environment looks like, you know, uh, what will get better from an inflation perspective. I think that will be enough for the Fed to be able to you know, dial back and pause its hikes by you know, some point in the first quarter. And once that does, then you, you take away some of the downside skew from Fed hiking to get a more balanced view. And the Fed will also be more worried about kind of slowing growth, not just high inflation, which means if things deteriorate further, then they can accelerate when they would want to start cutting rates. And again, that would be more of a tailwind for the markets. Then for growth, it looks like growth will slow in the U.S. and globally, certainly into the, into the start of the new year. But perhaps by the second quarter, middle of the year, it should trough uh, and then start a gradual recovery. So if you have an environment where the Fed is stop raising rates and may even cut rates by the end of next year, Inflation is kind of clearly falling, so it's disinflation, and growth is starting to kind of pick up gradually. Historically, that's a good environment for risk assets. Now, the question is how soon that will materialize, but I think by 12 months from now, you know, those conditions should be in place. You couple that with valuations, whether it's in fixed income, where you're getting in pretty attractive yields in parts of fixed income and saver fixed income that we haven't seen for a while, and equity valuations, that all of which would provide return buffer for the medium to longer term that does suggest on as the further out you go, the environment improves. But we have to kind of get through probably, you know, three to six months of you know, difficulty kind of through the winter before that really becomes kind of clear. We can start to see some kind of green shoots materializing in the economy, but also in financial markets. So, Jason, with these return expectations in mind, again, looking largely lackluster over the next three to six months. However, there is potential for better upside over the next year. How should we think about positioning right now? So we did uh, officially downgrade our view of U.S. equities, U.S. high yield, fixed income, corporate bonds, and senior loans from a neutral view to a least preferred view. And we did downgrade commodities, which had been most preferred uh, to down to neutral. Still liking oil, um, but the other part of commodities, especially metals, are tied to China's economy. Uh, and China's economy doesn't look like it's accelerating. It actually looks like right now it's, it's decelerating. So a lot of optically sort of you know, moves to, to kind of shift views on asset class preferences. But I think the most important sort of takeaway, and the one thing that people should take away from my comments right now is that this is more about a message to mitigate near-term downside risks for the next few months while maintaining upside exposure for the medium and long term. 
you know, for those investors who have seen a lot of cash that are underinvested in, in equities, this is not a reason for them to sell. If anything, there's opportunities when there's volatility and pullbacks to wanting to add to those positions. So that's kind of the, you know, the key kind of point of the message. It's more about risk mitigation to manage downside risk than it is a, a, a you know, negative view on the medium to longer term outlook. Uh, you know, what a message, a general message that we've had for a while is you know, to get more defensive in portfolio positioning. That's been the case in our equity allocation in terms of sectors getting more defensive and the sector tilts less cyclical. We've had an up in quality bias within fixed income, you know, preferring investment grade corporate bonds over high yield, over senior loans. You know, that continues. Uh, when we look at high yield, for example, the spreads right now are a little bit over 500 basis points relative to treasuries. In a typical recession, they would widen out to 750 basis points. So it feels like the skew is for those spreads to widen. You can now get decent yield, you know, or actually good yield, by moving up in quality to investment-grade corporate bonds with the yield is closer to 60%. Uh, and so you can get attractive returns and yield without taking unnecessary a lot of, you know, kind of credit risk or, in some cases, even interest rate risk. So that's kind of the, the strategy that we're recommending you know, in terms of downgrading U.S. equities, it's really not a call on U.S. versus other regions, but more a call on sort of reducing kind of, you know, uh, kind of extreme exposure to equity risk in the U.S. to go into a little higher quality kind of asset classes. Uh, so that's kind of the general kind of view of how we're thinking about things, even within commodities. Well, to downgrade, you know, we like oil because the fundamentals suggest oil prices should go higher. It's also a geopolitical risk hedge, as we've seen with OPEC, you know, curtailing some of their production or at least planned production. Um, so this is more about perhaps in the portfolios, buying some downside protection, trimming some excessive risk exposures, continue to get defensive. You know, I think kind of sheltering in place, so to speak, as opposed to selling out or completely vacate, vacating your portfolio um, and then waiting for opportunities as we move forward to actually add exposure uh, as opportunities arise across different risk asset classes and even in within fixed income over the next you know, six months or so. Well, Jason, thank you for bringing us up to speed on the Chief Investment Office's current thinking and sharing with us what a market outlook looks like near term as well as medium to long term as we head into 2023 and the guidance when it comes to asset allocation as well. I do want to point out here for our listeners as well as our clients of UBS, uh, the CIO market alert, which was authored back on Friday, is now available for you up on UBS.com forward slash CIO. That title, Managing Heightened Risks, it's also available for our clients. If you reach out to your UBS financial advisor directly, they can send a copy to you. But Jason, thank you again for dropping by for the CIO Strategy Snapshot to tee off another week. Very productive conversation as always and looking forward to having you back again with us soon. You're welcome and have a great week. Likewise. Thank you, Jason. Again, we've been joined today by Jason Dreho, the head of Asset Allocation Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office from UBS Studios. I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways 
and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.